last month, on a sunny, cloudless Saturday morning, I went somewhere that my Northern Colorado History podcast rarely takes me. Denver. Hi, Hi Roland. Got you before you rang the bell so the oh, dogs wouldn't be barking. Perfect. How are you? <laughs> okay. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Coming here. Would you like water or something? Um, sure. That would actually be great. Did you want ice? I drove down there to meet Roland Halpern to talk about a man he's never met. When I stepped inside Roland's home, I immediately saw the family photos and documents neatly lined up along Roland's dining room table for me. There were official reports from park rangers, letters to and from J. Edgar Hoover, an annual magazine from a New York circus company circa the 1930s. Some of these things, copies of letters and maps, once belonged to Roland's father, Bernie. It wasn't until Bernie died in 1998 that Roland started finding bits and pieces of this stash, and with it, a family mystery. You know, going just as we were trying to go through all this estate things and, and deciding what we keep and what we donate and whatever, um, I just started coming across bits and pieces, and a lot of these things weren't even in one place. Um, I would find tucked away in a book or something a picture of Joe, or I'd find you know, a letter somewhere and just started compiling all of this stuff. And that's what you see here uh, is a culmination of, of most of those documents. All of it centered around one thing, one person, Bernie's little brother and Roland's uncle, Joe. Well, you know, my father was very stoic. He was one of those people that came up through the Depression and really didn't talk too much about things. And we never really heard a lot about Joe. The only thing we would ever hear is, don't go hiking alone because that's what happened to my brother and he disappeared. Joseph Halpern was 22 in the summer of 1933. That's when he left his native Chicago to embark on a Western road trip with his parents and a college friend. But the trip would end early and in a way nobody ever expected. On August 15th, 1933, Joe went missing on a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park. Hours, then days, then years, then decades passed. No sign of him. It's been 85 years, and there are still no answers. But that hasn't stopped Roland, who picked up the search from his father and continues it to this day. He still follows every lead, including the tantalizing ones that allege Joe hiked out of the park to start a new life. Roland's on a mission. He, like many people before him, want to know what the hell happened to Joseph Halpern. You're listening to The Way It Was, episode 18. And maybe, at the end of this, you'll have some theories of your own. It's 
All right, folks, we're going to make three stops today. We're going to stop at Beerstadt Lake, Trailhead, Glacier Gorge, and then our final stops up at Bear Lake. A few months ago, I fell into an internet rabbit hole. I was researching Colorado cold cases, which is like a totally normal thing to do on a Friday night. And I didn't think I'd find my next podcast episode. And I definitely didn't think that it would lead me here. Surrounded by families and tourists inside a visitor shuttle at Rocky Mountain National Park. Rocky, as it's called by us locals, is 415 square miles of pristine alpine beauty, sandwiched between Estes Park and Grand Lake. Since it was established in 1915, its snowy peaks, mountain lakes, and array of wildlife have beckoned tourists, nature lovers, and hikers to its vast offerings. Things have changed a lot since Joseph Halpern's fateful trip here. Back then, Rocky was new, only 18 years old. And in 1933, when Joe and his friend Sam wanted to go on a hike, they just drove from their nearby campground, parked at the Bear Lake Trailhead, and were on their way. When I was there, on a misty Friday, I pulled in around 10 a.m., and every space was already filled. The shuttle it was. All right, folks, this is Bear Lake. Please check and make sure you have all your belongings before you leave the bus today. Please watch your step getting off the bus. My roommate joined me, and it was kind of eerie when we got out of the shuttle to know this was the last place Joe ever parked his car. 85 years ago, he had marveled at the views I was about to marvel at. And up those trails I was eyeing, where parents lug their toddlers and visitors angle for that perfect Instagram shot, Joe's story ended. In its place, theories, sightings, and questions popped up. So let's just start out with the basics. Joe Halpern, son of Solomon and Fanny, brother to Bernie, went for a hike. He, his parents, and a college friend named Sam Garrick were in the middle of a road trip that had taken them through South Dakota and into Colorado. You see, Joe loved to hike. Apparently he couldn't get enough of it. Sam, on the other hand, was not as enthused. According to a report from Rocky's chief ranger at the time, on August 15th, the two men left Joe's parents at the Glacier Basin campground where they'd been staying, and they took Joe's Ford sedan to the Bear Lake Trailhead. From there, they headed up to Flattop Mountain, a popular hike. Around two that afternoon, a fellow camper from their campground runs into the pair, west of the summit of Hallett's Peak. They're in a friendly argument, the guy says, over whether or not to continue hiking or head back. Joe's not done for the day, but Sam is. So they split up. Sam heads back via the Flattop Mountain Trail, and Joe, wanting to climb Taylor Peak, keeps hiking. 
Their plan is to meet back at the Bear Lake Trailhead. And Sam gets there around 6.30 p.m. But Joe doesn't. Sam waits and waits until 9. And it's a little late, so he decides to call a ranger. The search starts that night, with rangers using electric headlights combing the area. It would go on for five more days. One of the most heartbreaking pieces of this story is the letters. Over the years, Roland has collected, saved, and scanned hundreds of them. They start in the early 30s, going back and forth between Joe and his best friend, Isidore Garrick. Isidore also happens to be the brother of Sam Garrick, Joe's hiking partner. Isidore, who's intermittently called Izzy or Ed, his middle name, was originally invited on the Halpern's road trip, but he couldn't make it, so Sam went in his place. Then there are the letters after the trip. They're written mostly from Joe's parents to and from Isidore, trying to make sense of what happened and who their son was. As the search wore on in those early days, Sam wrote the following back to Isidore in Chicago. I've got some tragic news. Joe Halpern disappeared in the mountains last Tuesday, and nothing has been seen of him since. Everyone has lost hope of ever finding him alive. The last couple days have been miserable out here, with the deadly gloom prevailing. Mrs. Halpern cries all night long. Joe's mother also penned a postcard herself back to Bernard, alerting him to the situation. Take care of yourself, she ends it. You're all we have. A map and reports from Rocky Mountain National Park show exactly where rangers searched for Joe. Sam wrote that he and Joe's dad averaged 15 miles a day in their own searches. But as you've already heard, they didn't find anything. The Halperns packed up and went home to Chicago on August 21st, the same day the park's search ended. It was over, right? Not exactly. As I said before, Joe's parents consistently wrote to his best friend Isidore after Joe's disappearance. And on October 23rd, 1934, Joe's dad wrote the following... Dear Ed, Joe is alive, or at least it is highly probable that he is. More on that after this break. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by The Coloradoan. At The Coloradoan, we have 20 journalists who live in and love Fort Collins just as much as you do. This community is our home, and we're committed to digging in on local government, providing you in-depth breaking news coverage, making sure you're up to date on the latest things to do, and bringing you up-to-the-minute sports scores. The fact of the matter is, we can't keep doing what we love to do, things like this podcast, without your support. Consider signing up for a digital subscription today at coloradoan.com slash podcast offer. Thanks for reading and listening. 
As I mentioned before the break, there hasn't been any sign of Joe found since he and Sam Garrick parted ways in Rocky Mountain National Park that August afternoon. According to the Chief Ranger's report later that month, Joe had been lightly clad in a white striped shirt and khaki trousers. He carried a small gray knapsack, which had four or five sandwiches, an orange, two bananas, and a 1933 Rocky Mountain National Park motorist guide map. A native of Chicago, he was described as an inexperienced hiker. The weather that week seemed nice during the day, with highs hovering in the mid-60s and low 70s, but the nights dipped into the low 40s, and according to Sam's letter back to his brother Isidore, the search got hit with some storms. All of these factors lead to the most popular and likely theory, that Joe never left Rocky Mountain National Park. This was the theory held by the park superintendent at the time. Edmund Rogers, who wrote in his monthly report that Joe, hiking pretty late in the day, likely got caught in the dark on Taylor Peak and, trying to descend down, slipped and fell into a crevice somewhere. Roland has a similar but slightly different theory, and it starts with Joe's letters to his best friend. What, you know, when you read the letters that um, Joe sent to Izzy or Edward, He's a real kind of trickster. He's a mischievous, this is Joe, he's a mischievous kind of guy. I think, you know, my own feeling is that he never left the park, that probably he was going to run down the Tyndall Glacier and beat um, Sam back to the trailhead as a joke. And somewhere along the way, he got sucked down in the glacier or one of the cliffs Mm -hmm. or whatever. That's my kind of feeling as to what happened. Because none of these other things, these mysterious sightings of him outside of the park, none of that has borne any fruit. And the fact that he was so close to um, to Ed, I don't think he'd do that to anyone. You know, at least not consciously. They were very, very close. He wouldn't disappear. I I don't think he would just abandon his friend. Now, if something happened, there was like a rumor, maybe he hit his head and had amnesia or something, didn't know who he was, uh, that might explain that, but... Um, that gets into, like, the made-for-TV yeah. movie kind of arena where it's a little well, even a in, little crazy. It, it's, yeah, a little crazy, and there was this one book uh, written called Missing 411, and it's it's alleging that, um, you know, it was an alien abduction, uh, alien abduction um, one of many that happened in the area. Uh, oh, yeah. I... Aliens? Yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. But there are, like Roland mentioned, some less likely but awfully tantalizing theories on what happened to Joe. You see, the thing is, visitors at Rocky have gone way, way up over the years. Millions of people hike its trails and explore its far-reaching expanses every year. So in these 85 years, wouldn't someone somewhere stumbled over his backpack or spotted his remains? That's what generally happens. Someone goes missing, and weeks, months, or years later, their remains are found. In fact, according to Joe Evans, a retired chief ranger at Rocky, he knows of only four cases in the park's history where visitors have gone missing without a single trace. There's Joe Halpern, 
in the summer of 1933, of course. Then, in October 1949, two Colorado A&M students, 20-year-old David DeWitt and 21-year-old Bruce Gerling, got separated from their hiking group, also in the Flattop Mountain area. Rudy Motor, a 27-year-old backcountry skier, went missing in a different part of Rocky in 1983. But unlike in the cases of Dave, Bruce, and Joe, a sign of Rudy, his food pack, was later found in the park. A lot of people, when they travel, whether it's to a national park or to a foreign country or to a different state or city, you know, often lose their um, perspective on uh, what is safe and how to avoid um, getting injured or getting lost and that sort of thing. That's Evans. He was at Rocky from 1991 to 2004 and worked in five other large national parks in the West. He's retired now in living in southwest Colorado. In 2009, he published a book detailing the tragic incidents in Rocky's past. It's titled Death, Despair, and Second Chances in Rocky Mountain National Park. I I think it's really, um, it's interesting where they they are for starters. Trailhead starts right there at Bear Lake, and it it goes up and over to to Grand Lake, and there's actually two or three different routes that you you can spin off of, and it's, it's it's really an interesting part of the park. You know, it's extremely um, beautiful. It's open. It's basically flat and vast. And, you know, with, with the two um, Colorado State kids as well as um, Joseph Halpern, I mean, they were all kind of lost in the same area, which I think is kind of interesting. And there's been a number of rescues or searches up in that area, you know, just because of the, um, you know, the, the easiness, so to speak, of, of getting lost if you get off trail. Um, it's, a, it's a vast area, and, uh, and you have to work your way off the, the plateau at some point, either going east down into towards Estes Park or west down towards Grand Lake. And, boy, if you get off trail, there's some, there's some real um, uh, difficult canyons and, and a lot of places for, for people to, quote-unquote, disappear and, um, and never be found. And I think that's kind of the case with at least three of these kids. And, um, and it's unfortunate, but um, it... Okay, okay. We've talked about the likely theory of Joe getting lost while hiking. So what are these tantalizing alternate theories? I know that's why you're all really here. The first and most far-fetched, in my opinion, is that Joe knocked his head, got amnesia, and wandered out of the park not knowing who he was or where he was from. A second theory centers around Sam Garrick, Joe's hiking companion, Remember, the two were seen having a friendly disagreement when another hiker came upon them on the trail. Here's Roland. Is there a theory out there that Sam had anything to do with with Joe's disappearance, or is there any credence to that at all? I don't think there's a lot of credence to it. My father always kind of thought that, that Sam wasn't telling as much as he knew. 
but that was just my father's opinion. Um, and he based that on one account um, from one of the um, the people that was searching, just saying that Sam seemed really agitated and whatever. And so, you know, it, it was more speculation. I mean, there's really nothing to back that up. And there's a, another letter in there that um, uh, was sent to my father from, um, I think it was Isidore Garrick. And basically said that uh, you know he he didn't think there was anything suspicious going on and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just we didn't want to rule any theories out. And because right. there was an argument, even though it was reported as friendly, uh, friendly arguments sometimes escalate into something different. The third and most plausible alternate theory, in my opinion, is that Joe hiked out on purpose and started a new life. You see, somewhere sprinkled in Joe's silly letters to Isidore, he does mention being burdened by his brightness. Known as a math and astronomy whiz, Joe was smart. I mean, he was 22 and finishing up his doctorate in astronomy at the University of Chicago. But there were mentions of him idolizing this simple, nomadic life of a hobo. This is what his parents seemed to cling to in the months after Joe's disappearance. And then one day, a friend of theirs visited them. He saw a picture of Joe and said, Oh yeah, I saw him recently begging for a meal outside of a Phoenix restaurant. The Halperns jumped on this. They wrote to the restaurant owner, who showed a picture of Joe to the police and boys in a local transient camp. They said that they recognized him and that he'd been there in the winter of 1933, under a different name. Another claim was that Joe had been part of the Lewis Brothers Circus in Michigan in the summer of 1935, and that he'd been known there under the alias of Lewis Hollenbuck. These leads, of course, led to Mr. and Mrs. Halpern's long-held belief that Joe was out there somewhere, and that one day, he'd come home. Because of this, they and their son Bernard wrote letters every couple of years to then-director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Fingerprints of Joe's were on file at the Chicago post office, where Joe had had a mailbox, and they were sent to the FBI. There, they were kept in a missing person file. But since Joe's disappearance didn't involve any violations of federal law, that was the extent of the FBI's involvement. All of these theories specifically the one about Joe running off to the circus and living under the name Lewis Hollenbuck, came from a letter a friend of Joe's wrote to Hoover in 1936. That friend was named Sam Greenfield of Los Angeles. And despite all of his efforts, Roland has never been able to track Greenfield or his family down to learn more about these specific leads and how they came about. It's tantalizing in that he wrote to J. Edgar Hoover and provided all this information that, um, for instance, um, Joe was working for the Lewis Brothers Circus in Michigan in 1935, which would have been two years after his death. He was referred to as Lewis Hollenbuck, so I followed up on trying to run down anybody by the name of Lewis Hollenbuck. Um, He did a lot of writing. He left the circus before his parents got there. He was seen in Phoenix, Arizona. And I tried following up on all of these and to no avail. Um, Also, there was some rumor that he might have joined the Conservation Corps because they were actively working in the park 
uh, that he the, just joined one of the, the search parties and and walked out with them. Yes, uh, and so this is kind of tantalizing, and I don't know where any of this information came from. And, and you know, we tried to to follow up with the um, the circus, and I looked at old circus photographs. Um, unfortunately, the um, the files for 1935, because they, they produce like a magazine every year. Mm -hmm. I hope this doesn't make too much noise for your recording. Oh, you're they, they produce the magazine every year, and the only one we haven't been able to find is 1935. Really? But um, these were just the, the big, it's called Bandwagon, and it just had all the shows. And so I would go through copies of these looking to see if there were any photographs in there that might have been somebody that looked like Joe. Uh, and looked at the group pictures and things like that, but uh, could not find anything from 1935. So it sounds like you've pulled out all the stops. You've done everything you could possibly do. You know, do. I, I hope I have, but there's always something in the back of your mind telling you that there's something missing. Yeah. And so, you know, what I do is I don't obsess on this. Sometimes I'll just put it away and I'll pull it out six months later and I'll go back through it and maybe something new will hit me. Um, so it, it was kind of like no stone unturned, but there's probably still stones out there. Yeah. We don't know about yet. The biggest stone Roland ever turned was definitely the discovery of the letters. From Joe to Isidore, from the Halperns to Isidore, and from Bernie to those various government agencies. The letters to and from Isidore fell into Roland's lap after he started looking into the case. After finding his father's letters and notes, he reached out to Sam Garrick's children. Sam, who went on to become a physician, died in 1976. His kids connected Roland with Linda Silversmith, who lives out on the East Coast. Her father was Isidore Edward Garrick. And she found out about Joe Halpern the same way that Roland did, right after her father, Isidore, died. And then after he died in 1981, I was helping my mother by going through my father's papers, and I came across this huge pile of letters. And it was correspondence between my father and uh, Joseph Halpern's parents, and also the Park Service at some point, all about Joseph having disappeared and my father being sure that he would never have run away he would never have gone away anywhere without telling his parents and that something must have happened to him. And my then-husband, Don Silversmith, and I were fascinated, and Don took it upon himself to write to the Park Service and say, did you ever find this guy? Mm -hmm. And they basically said he probably got eaten by a wild animal. When Roland contacted Linda almost two decades later, she sent him all of those letters, which helped form a better picture of Joe, his friendships, and his life. Once a year, Linda travels out to Colorado to visit an old childhood friend. And each year, she calls up Roland to meet and catch up. But only when, only when I see Roland do I sort of think about it again. Mm. Um, and, 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 I, and then my kids don't sometimes speculate about, you know, Gee, did he really get eaten by an animal, or did he run away? And, but, yeah. um, what do you think happened? Well, I think the Park Service is probably right, and the most likely thing is that, that he got killed and eaten by a wild animal, and that's why there's been no trace mm -hmm. that anybody could find. Yeah. 
But on the other hand, you know, there are these stories about how he may have shown up here or there somewhere later. And uh, not, I don't think any of us ever knows another person 100% to know whether they're capable of something or not. The most interesting part of researching this podcast, for me, was reading through Joe's letters before he disappeared. It feels intimate in a way reading the correspondence between two college pals more than 80 years later. They paint Joe as this silly, nerdy, young guy, someone at the start of his life. And then the letters end. His life continued in a way through the letters that his parents sent back and forth to Isidore. In those early years, 1933 and 34, their tone is insistent. Mr. and Mrs. Halpern wanted to know about their son, and they hung on to every detail Isidore was able to provide. They used them to bolster their theory that Joe was still alive. The Halperns moved out of Chicago to a farm in Indiana, and in their letters they implore Isidore to come visit them. They hear from him intermittently as his life goes on, In 1936, Mr. Halpern writes that they're so happy to hear Isidore has met a girl, his future wife, and Linda's future mother, Cicely. They mention again that there's a place for them on the farm if they ever decide to visit. There's the main house, and then two small guest cabins. One for Bernard whenever he visits, and another reserved for Joe when he comes home. The Halperns held on to hope, a family tradition Roland is happy to carry on in a different way. He knows Joe isn't alive. He expects he never left Rocky Mountain National Park. But he keeps plugging away, pulling out his uncle's file every so often to take another crack at the case. You know, it's really, I'm trying to find closure for my father even though he died. Um, And again, when I started reading through some of the letters he had sent, um, you can sense the passion, the frustration, um, and everything else. And he really wanted to solve this case for my grandparents before they died, and he wasn't able to do that. And I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to at least know what happened? Like the cabin that sat empty in Indiana all those years, Roland made a similar purchase. It's a cemetery plot, near where his grandparents are buried in Florida, and it's reserved, hopefully one day, for Joe's remains. That's it for this month's episode of The Way It Was a podcast podcast hosted and produced by myself, Erin Udell, at the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. I've also written a story about Joe's disappearance and compiled some photos of him courtesy of Roland, including the last known picture of Joe in Rocky Mountain National Park. So for another look at this story, head online to coloradoan.com later this week. I'd like to say a quick thanks to Linda Silversmith, Joe Evans, and of course, Roland, for their help with making this episode possible. 
Again, Evans's book is called Death, Despair, and Second Chances in Rocky Mountain National Park, in case you'd ever like to check it out. Next month, Colorado reporter Jake Laxon will be back with another guest podcast episode of The Way It Was, interviewing CSU football legend Coach Sonny Lubick. So make sure to check that out. Subscribe to the podcast, and please, please drop us a rating or review in your Apple Podcast app. Thanks for listening, guys.